Hey, people. Good to see you all. Hey, uh, this past March at the True False Film Festival, I saw a film uh, called American Animal. Maybe some of you saw it. My guess is a lot of you didn't. American Animals, though, uh, tells the true story, tells a true story of a couple college students in Kentucky who are privileged, bored, and looking for something more exciting in life to do. And so what do they decide to do? They, they decide to concoct a plan to pull off an insane multi-million dollar heist. And their target is rare art at their school's library. Now this plan, as, as the movie unfolds, it becomes so ridiculous that, that they get other people, two other guys in particular, to go along with the sheer kind of what-if adventure of it all. And as the film goes on, these, these four guys, they, they get schematics of the school library. They draw maps, escape plans. They figure out precise times of who's working in the library and when. They come up with elaborate alibis, disguises. They even buy a getaway car. They find someone on the black market to, to buy from them whatever it is that they steal. It's fun, it's exhilarating, and it's completely ridiculous, and they know it. It's interesting, because in this film, these four guys are actually interviewed. It's a documentary. They're obviously much older now, but they say something really interesting. It's really intriguing. This is what they say. They said that they all thought that they would stop the whole plan before anyone actually attempted to pull it off. You see, none of them really expected to go through with it. None of them thought that they were actually capable of going through with that heist. But they say they were having so much fun, it was so crazy, it was so exciting, the adrenaline was pumping so much that before they knew it, they had gone too far. And they said there was no turning back. Nobody wanted to be the guy that killed the plan. Nobody wanted to be the guy that broke the fun, so much so that they ended up doing the thing that they never actually thought they'd do. They try and pull off the heist. Now, if you saw the film, you know, and if you didn't, things don't go as planned, right? They rarely do. This elaborate plan that they had concocted, it quickly falls apart and becomes a disaster. For one, there were far more people in the library working at the time than they expected. Then there's, there's a scene in which one of the men, um, in, an, in a moment of panic, he tasers an elderly librarian. But the taser doesn't work. Right? So they freak out. What do I do? I just tase an 80-year-old woman. It's not working. So they hogtie her. They gag her. They drag her behind a counter and leave her there. You see, they said they never intended on hurting anyone, and yet here they are. When they eventually try to escape, they, they, they hit the wrong button on an elevator and end up having to run through the student center in front of hundreds of people. Not exactly the plan to get away unseen. That person that they found on the black market, one of the guys makes a mistake. He gives that person his personal cell phone number. As it turns out, the FBI was listening to that phone call. A week later, they bust into their apartments through their doors. These guys are arrested, convicted, and sentenced to several years in a federal prison. 
Lives and futures ruined, families devastated, destroyed, all because of a crime these guys didn't think that they would actually commit, a plan they didn't think that they were actually capable. You see, what started out exciting and adventurous for a couple of bored college students eventually ruined their lives. Isn't this kind of how sin works in our lives? Isn't this kind of how sin works in our lives? It tempts us with excitement. It promises us adventure. Sometimes sin even feels exhilarating. But it never lasts. Instead, it leads us to do things that we didn't think we'd do. And it leads us into places we never thought we'd be. And we end up wondering, how did I even get here? Let me ask you a question. When's the last time that that you paused to reflect and think about where the sin in your life is leading you? Where is the sin in your life leading you? Tonight we're going to continue our series through 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're going to look at what is arguably the most well-known story in Samuel behind the David and Goliath story. And this story is the story of King David and a woman named Bathsheba. Several of you are probably familiar with it. And as we look at this story tonight, I want to pay specific attention to three things. Three things. First, the power of sin. Second, the power of community. And third, the power of God's grace. So first, the power of sin. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, so David's on a roof, which would have been normal in ancient Israel because roofs functioned as an extension of a person's living space. David's on a roof, and he sees from however far away, the author tells us, a beautiful woman bathing on her roof. Now, we hear bathing, and we immediately assume that Bathsheba is naked. That's our first thought. Woman bathing, she must be naked. Right? Some like to even claim in this passage that Bathsheba was intentionally trying to seduce David. She knew what she was doing up on that roof. But to be honest, there's no evidence to support either of those claims in the text itself. Interestingly, the Hebrew word used here for bathing, it, it often refers to ritual cleansing. Which makes sense because if we look again at verse 4... It tells us that Bathsheba was purifying herself from her uncleanness. Now, there's no historical evidence that these cleansings were done naked. And so what this suggests 
is that Bathsheba wasn't on her roof naked just taking a bath. But instead, she was purifying herself from menstrual impurity, which was something we don't have time to get into, but something that the Old Testament... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Something that Old Testament law required. Just leave it at that. Ask someone else some other time. It, to be honest, it's, it's probably best, this is, this, is, uh, yeah, this is my official statement here, it's probably best to say that we aren't actually sure what Bathsheba was doing on the roof and why she was there. And we, we, we literally just don't know definitively. We have to concede that. But we do know this. We do know this. The answer to that question, why is Bathsheba on the roof? What is Bathsheba doing on the roof? That is not the focus of this story. Bathsheba is not the point of this story. No, the focus of this entire story is David and his sin. Now, what does David do? It's obvious he lusts, right? But he does far more than lust. He sees a woman. He sends for her. It says he takes her. And then he sleeps with her. Now, I want us to key in on that word took because it's important. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel was demanding to be like everyone else. Why did they want to be like everyone else? They wanted to be like the nations. They wanted a king, right? Remember, this was before Israel had a king. And so Samuel, the prophet, he says, fine, but just so you know, this is what kings are like, you people of Israel. They're takers. Remember? He said, they'll take your sons. They'll take your daughters. They'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards. They'll take a tenth of your grain, your flocks. They'll take your servants. They'll take and take and take, and they'll make them all their own. Kings are takers. Kings are powerful. Kings get what they want. And in this case, King David takes the wife of another man. Now, some of us are sitting here wondering, and it's a fair question, did Bathsheba consent? Again, the text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't say, did she consent? But I will say this, it's hard to imagine that she could have possibly said no. It's hard to imagine that Bathsheba could have possibly said no, even had she wanted to. Because in those days, disobeying a king almost certainly brought death. Saying no to a king almost certainly brought death. And so what we see in this passage is that David abuses this power that God had given him as king. And he abuses a woman entrusted to him to care for. It's a terrible thing. And as a result, we see that Bathsheba gets pregnant. And what does David do? He panics. We don't have time to, to read the entire story, so let me, let me summarize. This is what David does next. He finds out Bathsheba's pregnant, and he freaks out. And he says, what can I do? So he calls Uriah. Her husband is out in, in, in the war. Calls Uriah back, and, and he brings Uriah before him, and, and he asks Uriah, he says, how are things going? How are the troops? How are the men? How's the war? How are you? But David isn't concerned with Uriah at all. You see, David's motivation was to get Uriah to his home that night. 
Because David's hope was that Uriah would go home, spend the night with his wife, sleep with her, and then he could pin the pregnancy on him. Problem solved. Except if you know the story, Uriah throws a curveball. He doesn't do it. He says he's too committed to God, too committed to his fellow men. He says, how can I go home and be with my wife when all of my men, when even God himself are camping in tents far away, away from comfort, away from family? And so David says, shoot, i got to try something else. So what does he do? He brings Uriah over to his house the next day. He says, hey, come over. And while Uriah is, is at David's house, he gets him drunk. And he thinks to himself, surely now he's drunk. He'll stumble home and have sex with his wife. But the problem is David vastly underestimates Uriah's character. And instead of sleeping with his wife that night, he stayed and he sleeps on a couch. It's ironic that Uriah drunk is a better man than the king in this moment who is sober. But David's desperate. He's too far down the road of destruction. He can't get out, and so he does something even worse. We pick up the story in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. See, Uriah was carrying his own death notice that morning, and he didn't even know it. Now, who, who is Uriah? Is he just some dude that, wrong place, wrong time? Not actually. You see, when David was a fugitive in the wilderness, earlier in, in the book of Samuel, when, when David is fleeing from King Saul, remember Saul wanted to kill David. David had a group of men. He, he called these men his mighty men. And they were a group of men that, that risked their lives to defend David in the face of danger, in the face of this king who was trying to kill him. Uriah, we're told, is one of David's mighty men. Uriah is a man whom David owes his own life. But David has him killed. The story just gets worse. So what can we learn up, up to this point? What can we learn from the story this so far? I think a couple things. First, we learn that every single one of us all of us in here are capable of doing things we never thought we would. None of us in here are immune from immoral collapse. That's because the seeds of darkness reside in all of our hearts. We're so tempted to think that the problem is out there when the problem starts in here. Think about it for a second. David was God's anointed king. God said, I want that guy. Samuel says in another part of the book that, that David, this is how he describes him. He said, David is a man after God's own heart. David writes significant parts of our Old Testament. He writes several of the Psalms, words like Psalm 40, verse 8, that say, I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. 
David wrote that. David meant that. But he also did this. The gross abuse of power. Adultery. Deceit. Manipulation. Murder. See, if this can happen to King David, are we really naive enough to think that it can't happen to us? See, I think one of the worst possible things that, that we could do is believe that we aren't capable of doing really bad things. That the problem is out there and it's not in here. Second, we learn that sin has a progressive nature in our lives. It starts with something small, right? A little decision, a, a seemingly insignificant choice. Doesn't feel like a big deal, but soon enough things are out of control. We can't stop. We can't get out. We're in too deep. For David, it started with neglecting his duty as a king. We didn't look at it particularly, but, but the first verse of chapter 11 says that when all the other kings went out to battle, because that's what kings did, they go out to battle, what does David do? says he stayed home. All the other kings are out to battle. David decides to stay home. And when he's home, he sees Bathsheba. One decision led to the next. One choice to the next. And before long, a woman was likely abused. A friend was dead. Families were destroyed. You see, David's drive to cover up his sin, it leads him to more and more sin. It leads him to sin again and again and again, what are those little decisions, those little choices in your own life, the little sins that you're tolerating right now? What are those small concessions that you're making to live contrary to what God wants for you? John Owen, he's, a, he's an old dead guy at this point. He's a British theologian. He once said this, I think it's really profound. He said this, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Ask yourself, which one are you? Are you fighting sin in your life? Are you actively fighting sin in your life right now? Or if you're honest, is your sin killing you? You see, you and I, we're fooling, I say myself too, we're fooling ourselves if we think that sin, if we think that our sin isn't that big of a deal. We're kind of like the, the, the metaphorical frog in a kettle, right? Sitting in water as the temperature rises around us, completely unaware of the danger until it's too late. We're in boiling water and it kills us. You see, sin's powerful. Jesus knew that sin was powerful. It's why he says in the Gospels in the New Testament, if your right eye causes you to sin, do what? Tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off, throw it out. Now, of course, Jesus isn't literally saying throw your eye away and throw your hand away, right? He's using hyperbole to make the point that we need to take sin very seriously. God takes sin very seriously. Genesis tells us that sin is crouching at our door like a wild beast looking for someone to devour. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
See, the power of sin, it's real in our lives, which is why we have to fight. It's why we have to fight. But how? Second point, the power of community. See, David's story, it's not over, right? Earlier, we see that David sent Joab. He sent for Bathsheba. He sent for Uriah. And now it's God's turn to do some sending. He sends someone. Pick up in verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. So sweet, right? Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he does this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. You, David, are the man. See, God sends the prophet Nathan. And what does Nathan do? He tells a story. And as this story goes on, David's anger burns against this rich man. David, all of a sudden, is the quintessential champion for justice, right? He says, judgment to the man that has done this. That guy deserves to die. I can assure you he didn't expect the words that came out of Nathan's mouth. You are that guy, David. That guy is you. You see, part of how we fight the power of sin in our lives is through the, through the community of people that God gives us. So when David's at his worst, when he's at his lowest moment, God sends truth to David through a friend, through the prophet Nathan. What does that mean for us? What can we learn from that? A couple things again. First, it means that you and I need people like Nathan in our lives. We need the help of people around us. We need a community of friends to challenge us when we're being deceived. We need a, a group of friends. We need people to expose what we fail to see. We need others to confront the sins that, that you and I have grown to tolerate, that we've grown to justify. We need those same people to instead point us to something better, point us to God. Do you have friends like that? Maybe, maybe not many, but a few. Maybe not even a few, maybe just one. David had Nathan, and David needed Nathan. You and I, we need people like that in our lives. Now, let me just state the obvious. This doesn't happen on Snapchat. It doesn't happen on Facebook. It doesn't happen over text. It happens face-to-face. -face. It happens person-to-person. We have to have people like this in our lives, yes, but there's also a flip side. We need people in our lives, but, but the flip side is we have to ask ourselves, are, are we people that are humble enough 
to listen to our friends when they have something to say. Do you do that? Do you take your friends seriously? Do you take the people that God has put in your life seriously when they, when they come to you and they try and point out sin that they see? Or do you blow them off? Justify your actions. Tell them, you don't know what it's like to be me. You see, we need people in our lives, but it's not going to do us any good to have those people if we don't listen to them. It's not going to do us any good if we don't actually listen to them. Second, we need people in our lives. Second, we have to be willing to be the kind of friend that you and I need. In other words, we have to be willing to be like Nathan. I think for a lot of us, this is, this is actually the hard part. Think for a second how difficult it must have been for Nathan to confront his king's sin. Think about how hard that would have been. Despite the difficulty, despite the, the possible retribution that, that Nathan would face, despite the awkwardness that most certainly ensued, right? Nathan goes and he lovingly confronts David with his sin. Why? Because Nathan knows that David has fallen into sin's snare and the implications of that are deadly. Yes, when we confront people with their sin, it's awkward. Of course, it's hard, right? But God is calling you to be that kind of friend, to be the kind of friend that you yourself need, the kind of friend willing to speak truth to others in love when we see them caught up in sin. Notice I said speak the truth in love, not anger or frustration. That's really easy, right? It's easy to talk to people that are sinning out of anger and frustration. It's easy to talk to people out of impatience and judgment. It's easy to talk to people with a tone of condemnation and pride. It's really hard to confront people out of love. But sometimes the most loving thing that you and I can do is confront someone in our life that is struggling with sin that might not see it. You see, Nathan points out the sin in David's life with the hope, not just that it would make him feel bad, but the hope that it would lead David to repentance. So that's the kind of friend we need to be. Are you the kind of friend that's willing to listen when people point out your sin? Are you the kind of friend that takes sin so seriously that you risk the social implications, the awkwardness, because it's more important to point someone back to God? Okay, third point. Seeing the power of sin, the power of community. We also see the power of God's grace in this passage. I, I know that we're talking a lot about sin. It's a heavy passage. But I want you to stay locked in. Think for a second. What is your common response to sin in your life? How do you respond to your own sin? Now, some of us here tonight... Some of us sitting in this room right now, we rationalize our sin, we justify our sin, we've got a reason for why we're doing it and why we think it's okay. Some of us in here, we blame shift, it's his fault, it's her fault, they made me do it. Some of us sitting in here, we minimize it. That's eh, not that big of a deal. It's just a little thing. Everyone else is doing it. Some of us in here, though, we have a much different response. We know our sins well, and they completely overwhelm us. 
They completely overwhelm us, so much so that we can't escape the misery. We can't escape the self-pity that they bring. We're paralyzed by our sin. I know that there are some of you sitting here right now that feel completely ashamed because of your sin. Your sin, it makes you feel dirty. It makes you feel embarrassed. Your sin makes you feel completely unworthy of love and forgiveness. You're thinking to yourself, Kyle, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did last weekend. You don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I'm planning to do later this evening. You don't know what I've been through. We see in this passage that David's sins were many. They're serious. Abuse of power. Adultery at the least. Maybe even worse. Deceit. Manipulation. Murder. How did David respond to the sin in his life? Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's response to sin in his life, at some point after, I have sinned against the Lord. I mentioned earlier that David has written a lot of the psalms that we have in our Old Testament. One of those psalms that he wrote is Psalm 51. He wrote Psalm 51 after this confrontation he had with with Nathan. This is what he says. I want to look at just a few verses. Psalm 51, 1 through 4. David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It took David some time, but he eventually owns his sin. He recognizes the seriousness of what he's done and that his sin is first and foremost against God. Now that's not to say that the sin against Bathsheba or Uriah or their families, it's not to say that those sins are any less significant. Of course he sinned against them. Of course he hurt them greatly. But David realizes the deeper reality of his sin, that it's first and foremost a grievous offense against a holy God. And because of this, David is acutely aware of something. He's acutely aware of his need to be washed and cleansed. David knows he needs forgiveness for what he's done. The question is, how will God respond? Look at the second half of verse 13 back in 2 Samuel 12. God, through Nathan, said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. You see, God's response to David's sin is forgiveness. Yes, he will experience the consequences of that sin. We don't have time to get into all of those. But ultimately, we know that David is spared from the judgment that he rightly deserves because of God's grace. Repentance, turning away from sin, turning to God, it always results in forgiveness. Now, I know for a lot of us, that's incredible news. Maybe it's that news that has changed your life in profound ways. 
But I also know that for many of us, probably a lot of us even in here tonight, this forgiveness bit might actually be the hardest part of the story. Because if we're honest, receiving forgiveness is incredibly hard for us. We don't think we deserve it. We're unworthy of it. God couldn't possibly forgive me for what I've done. Sure, maybe for others it works, but not for me. Forgiveness is hard for a lot of us to receive because we live in a culture in which forgiveness is hard to give. Short story. Uh, by the year 1944, 89 of Simon Wiesenthal's Jewish relatives had been killed by Nazi soldiers. Wiesenthal, at this point in his life, was a prisoner himself at a concentration camp. And one day, he's pulled into the medical ward of this camp, and he's taken to the bedside of a dying Nazi soldier. Soldier's name was Carl. And as Carl laid there dying, he was haunted by the atrocity of the crimes that he had committed. And so with Wiesenthal at his bedside, he confesses to all the things that he's done. He confesses to participating in the ruthless execution of more than 300 Jewish men and women and children. And after his confession to this man, he, he said this. He said, in the last hours of my life, you are with me. I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew. And that is enough. I know what I've told you is terrible. In the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. Only I did not know whether there were any left. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Wiesenthal paused thought reflected and after a few moments he turned and he walked away from that man without saying a word he just walked away now decades later he he says he's still haunted by that decision did he do the right thing is the thing that has haunted him all these years to be fair i'm not sure any of us in here could claim that we would have done anything differently if we were in his shoes I want us to see that, that human forgiveness, though it's wise, though it's something that God calls us to, often it's inconsistent, and sometimes it's even nearly impossible for us to give. But the beauty of this passage tonight is that ultimate forgiveness is not based on human sentiment. Ultimate forgiveness is not based on human sentiment. God tells David through Nathan, the Lord has taken away your sin. You see, our hope is not in the hands of other people. People can't rightly see the depths of their sin. People can't grant us the restoration and the peace that you and I desperately need. Only God can. The Lord has taken away your sin. As the music team comes up, this story of David and Bathsheba, though it absolutely exposes the reality and the ugliness of sin, it also magnifies the beauty of God's grace. You see, this story should give all of us hope because every single one of us is like David. 
All of us know the reality of David's failure because all of us have experienced it to one degree or another. But regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it guarantees for you that if you repent, if you put your faith in him, just like Nathan said to David, he will take away your sin. You see, in Jesus, there's grace. There's mercy. There's forgiveness for you, for me. Your sin doesn't have to define your life. Your sin doesn't have to define who you are. Let Jesus do that. And so now, let's, let's cry out to him, just like David. Let's hear afresh those beautiful words. The Lord has taken away your sin through the blood of Jesus. Amen.